after World War II, the world was divided into East and West. This period of history is called the Cold War, and it is displeased by everyone. So this is how you know it was Great Imperial Police. The empires of the United States and the Union of Sovietic Republics hold the entire hostage, pointing at each other enough nuclear weaponry capable of offending humanity ten times over. Some choose another way. This third world includes two-thirds of the political entities, as well as more than half of the population of the world. And yet, it has been seen as powerless to stop the two imperial powers. This has changed over the last decade. A new movement has caught the imperial powers by surprise, with its dynamism and power. Cybernetic socialism has spread across the third world nations, emerging from early successes in Chile, Yugoslavia and Pakistan. From there, it brought relief to a world rattled by a decade of energy crisis. As the two empires force consolidation of their gains and tensions rise, the map of the world has changed and things are uncertain. For the first time, there is genuine hope for anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism. Finally, we can maybe move to a world of many worlds. Problems are constant, but through solidarity and the sharing of the bounty of science can do more than belief a better future is possible. resided. The tools of modern men have been disregarded at this level of recursion. And there is no one left to say aloud no to that until the people themselves say no. So this is why I contend that we are considering a future that can be demanded now. Every time we hear that a possible solution simply cannot be done, we may be sure, on general scientific grounds, that it can. Every time we hear that a solution is not economic, we ought to ask, for whom? Since it's people, just people, who will have to pay. Every time we hear that a proposal will destroy society as we know it, we should have the courage to say, thank God, at last. Whenever we hear that it will destroy our freedom, we should be very cautious indeed. For such freedom as we have is our most treasured possession, and we know how to be vigilant. Another day rises in Santiago, and we meet an American. Well, an American? Definitely he was found in America. 
but uh, who among us has not got lost and found themselves in the streets of LA? Well, less about me and let's talk about John Doe. So, John, what serves as your house now, even if you cannot call it home? John Doe's... He is an official member of System 4. He's one of the, I'd call it the high-profile members. I imagine he's staying in some sort of an equivalent of an apartment complex, probably with lots of other... I mean, it's weird to say because being a superhero is such an unusual career class for any society, but with other people whose lifestyles involve direct danger and helping others. Probably an apartment complex filled with firefighters and social workers. Yeah, and you live in social housing in one of the buildings uh, that is shared by two firefighter cooperatives and uh, the smaller social relief cooperative uh, that is uh, funded upon the void left by the church departing the city. And uh, yeah, it's it's comfortable. You have a small shared garden. Uh, you, because of your time of work, you don't see much of your neighbors, but uh, you mostly keep out of each other ways. They also spend of their, most of their time in unusual turns. And, but uh, it's on a quiet neighborhood of uh, Santiago. And what is your morning routine? I imagine, you know, John Doe, uh, he wakes up every morning, crack of dawn, makes himself breakfast, something simple that someone back in L.A. taught him how to cook, probably eggs, you know, eat over easy with toast. He has that cup of coffee and then does his morning routine of exercises, which is probably where he bumps into most of his neighbors the most. He leaves, does two laps around the block and then does a series of exercises in the garden that he just remembers. It's something very comforting to him because he doesn't remember much, but he always remembers this set of calisthenics that ends with him balancing himself on his index finger and reading from whatever text someone he was talking to at work has lent him to try and educate him a bit more on the goings-ons of the world. It's a variety of things that you would expect in the empowered third world, someone to hand a would-be superhero of it. Yeah, and uh, those words keep going and going. System for superhero. What does that mean for John Doe? Uh, how, what does it mean to be a superhero for him? Or at least, what does he think of himself as that uh, makes him that? So when John Doe first came to in America, as he was educated about the growing superhero and superpower movements of the world, he ran into lots of problems that he wondered why all these people didn't fix. All these men with the ability to shoot lasers out of their eyes and to recalculate the mass of a meteor in seconds, and they couldn't lend an inch of that brain power to helping with any of the million and one internal struggles he saw. You know, homelessness, the destruction of food. And when he ended up in Chile as part of System 4, he didn't really know what they were going to put him to do. He's a hand in a fight, but that's all he ever saw himself doing. 
And at least here, as part of System 4, he's useful to help these problems he sees. He can't go out and punch homelessness in its face, but System 4 puts him at targets he can do something about. And that's what being a superior means for him, for John Doe, is this grand opportunity to help in a way that he can. So if John Doe had to describe System 4 on his own words, what will he use? Well, uh, describe System 4 so elegantly. Uh, it's, I mean, wait a second here, I'm trying to think of how John Doe would describe Because he can't use big terms that he doesn't know. System 4 is a super team that protects people when they need desperate protection. And then we try to make it so they don't need us anymore. We help them develop tools to protect themselves. Outside of your apartment, you, you again, as I said, you, you are on one of the most quiet residential neighborhoods and uh, you need to get to the center of, uh, well, not only of Chile, of an entire movement across the globe. So you have a pretty considerable commute. So what are the reassuring uh, landmarks that John Doe goes through on their way to the war room. The small reassurances and memories that are repeated every single morning. I mean, John Doe having come of mind again in America, one of the biggest ones he sees that stands out that he loves, that he takes every day, even though with his enhanced reflexes and speeds, he could probably make it quicker via parkour or any of the million of what others way of someone running quickly across the city could do it, is the well-designed super science public transport system. A series of powerful light rails and buses that are... Ludo, I know you went over this. What is the internet equivalent that... uh, It's too early for the internet. What they have is... uh, they have the these telex machines. So, yeah, it's all about, uh, you know, it's all the precursor of the fox even. Right, right, right. The very efficient, well-designed, the most brilliant minds put together of this transit system is one of the big things that John Doe, and it helps connect him to the people who... On one hand, you know, John Doe is seen, he's in newspapers, he's a member of System 4. But on the other hand, it's still gotta be weird. It's, you know, sitting next to any political figure in the bus. After that, the other ones that stand out are trying to think of what the favored big art medium would be. I mean, statuary is so classic, but there's... Ooh... The cut the after he has to stop taking the bus and light rail because he does enjoy stretching his legs before whatever he's going to end up having to do. John also one of the other big symbols for him of not just system four, but the whole of what they're doing here was what was once a colonial statuary garden focused on conquerors and people from foreign lands that has been totally knocked down and replaced with a public food garden all native species to the area all flowering and fruiting and vegetables all free to grab as you go through he grabs a custard apple splits it over with his bare hands starts picking out the seeds to eat on his path as he always does and that's another big one this food garden replacing a monument that only served to remind people of who oppressed. And I think those are the two big standouts for John Doe. During the last 
decade. Most of the new building has been done by newly formed building cooperatives and uh, their focus was on residential development or to developing the infrastructure in the countryside. So as a result of that, most of the things that had to be created immediately after the counter-revolution, they were established on repurposed buildings. And of course, the war room of the System 4 is no exception. So what is the building in front of you? And what was it before? And what clear signs that indicate its old purpose still remain? You know, and this is a joke John Doe thinks is this is a this is something John Doe thinks is a particularly funny coincidence. And uh, I'm sure there are lots of other members of System Four who believe it's funny as well. I like to think that the System Four War Room is a former headquarters for the local police force. It was converted, and you can still see the conversion because they're currently replacing the last vestiges of the signage with something much more appropriate. They're currently the building is still a step fancier than a lot of the other buildings around it. It still probably has all of the heavy architecture that you notice on city police headquarters. And John Doe, usually even in the morning, because he gets there as early, he wakes up early, runs here early, stops to admire the fact that this was a good choice. Whoever was in charge of this, they made a good call. So you enter this repurposed police station and uh, most of the first floor has been made a common room where you can see a lot of people coming in and found and there's always the perpetual ringing of phones and uh, that is a heavy guarded and monitored elevator that you know that it leaves to the mainframe underneath the building. And then you have the staff room that leaves you directly to the war room. And uh, you get to the war room. So the war room of System 4 is a series of carefully arranged chairs in a circle. The chairs themselves have that retro-futuristic Art Deco look with a set of numbers embedded in the right hand and some sort of scanner in the left, probably for telex card, probably for computing cards and such. There are decorating the walls, various screens for projector and what looks like maps of the new, the socialist nations, in addition to maps with flashpoints indicating the conflicts. John Doe kind of sighs as he sits down in one of the chairs. They're not very comfortable, but that's probably the point. Yeah, you are the first to arrive today. And uh, next to the monitors, each of you has your own terminal. And uh, the principles that guide uh, System 4 are the same that, uh, that guide all the systems of the cybernetic government. Both the ability to meet variability and challenges and uh, the redundancy of the system and the role that uh, uh, System 4 enacts on the system as the protector of the internal variability of the system, in this case, the cybernetic international itself, is divided across multiple people 
so that uh, it does not fall on the shoulder or capacity of response of anyone. And at the same time, as you go around and the monitors, again, they don't stop showing data and blinking. And each of the terminals that uh, each of your personal terminals, I mean, it is tailor-built to track no more than three or five topics so that uh, each individual member of System 4 is able to keep tracks of these developments and devise an answer without themselves being overwhelmed. So this is something that uh, there is some kind of limited freedom because most of these appear based on what is happening in the large world, but uh, each of you, they can curate which ones they can feel uh, that they are ready to tackle. And uh, again, if someone else needs something detaining those topics, uh, you're kind of supposed to be able to provide anything on that. Again, on the basis of redundancy, there might be another person that also covers that, but uh, this is the reason why you're giving only three to four. So what were the three to four matters which John Doe focuses on his personal terminal? John Doe's personal terminal focuses on three to four very general matters that come down, or three to four general matters you get specific matters on, are probably other superpowered action. Specifically concerning the North American Hemisphere, John Doe, I'm sure is not the only System 4 member who's, li- in fact, we know he's not the only System 4 member who's lived amongst there, but it's something he's entrusted with because of his experience living there. And the memories he drudges up sometimes connect to that in weird ways. There's probably a general neoliberalism as it hurts. I mean, this is this is going to be so like I can feel Ludo about to be like, ah, so yes, neoliberalism, but neoliberalism, when it hurts the lowest income in large cities, because once again, John Doe spent his time homeless on the streets of L.A. And probably weirdly enough, because of his memory flashes, psychic actions as they relate to altering of minds, because even though John Doe doesn't know that's what affected his mind the idea that someone would tamper with the minds of others is a hot button for him and something that he wants to be kept abreast of the elevator rings at the opens and uh, from outside you see a tall shadow and uh, you see that uh, it's sobrana that comes in and uh, she has some kind of uh, milkshake uh, or shake uh, against her pecs and uh, you can see by the stains on uh, her shorts that uh, she just came from working on the shared garden in the front. She is one hand again holding the shake, the other a towel which she uses to clean her brow and uh, she absentmindedly moves to her own terminal. As she leans over her chair, she turns to you. How can you always the first one? Well, you see, I only sleep two hours a night. That cannot be healthy for you. It's also not entirely true. I don't know. I wake up bright and early no matter when I go to sleep. So I just adjust my schedule around that. Ah, so you just say that because you think it makes you cool. Absolutely. I I only sleep two hours a night. In addition, my skin cannot be cut by any blade that isn't 
made of an incredibly unalloyed metal. I can see through walls. She rolls their eyes. I'm not asking you about your file. Jesus. Ah, Mother Mia. Why? This is why you are here all this time. You're such a dork. I am not a dork. I just get here early because there's only two types of people in the world. There's early people and late people. And John Doe is an early person. So you're not a dork. So tell me, what did you do last night? John Doe stops to think and cue a flashback of him just like doing one handed pull ups, reading DOS Capital for like the third time, trying to get a good grasp on it. Then him doing sit ups while reading a different text and then push-ups while reading a, a third and yet different text. I stayed in, did, did exercises. Right, I also love my exercise and she flexes. But you know, it's not everything. John Doe kind of like scratches his forehead. I was doing some light reading. I'm a dork, aren't I? Yes, you are. I mean, all right, what did you do last night? Well, I last night I went to a party with some of my friends and it was amazing. And after that, we got to a very nice place outside of town where we stayed there the night. And then at dawn, we went to the beach and then I came to work. I also did not sleep more than two hours, but I was able to make a better use of it. Hey, I, I made excellent use of my time. I just, you know, thought I'd have an easy night in. I have a life outside of work. You two are interrupted by a backpack landing on uh, one of the shares and you see a grumpy teen with uh, one hand on the pockets of her skirt and the other balancing a bat. You two are dorks, honestly. And someone just shakes. Void Walker, Nina, you have to cheer up. Uh, whatever and uh, she spins on her chair and plugs in her terminal <sighs> I hate this word it's disgusting <sighs> look Voidwalker I, I, do you do you really think I'm a dork <sighs> the fact that you care what a stupid thing thinks about you makes you the biggest dorkiest dork alive and Sobrana kind of nods yeah yeah she has a point John kind of sighs. He takes out his switchblade comb, opens it, combs his hair, puts it away. All right. You're both dorks, too, though. I mean, Sobrata, you just... Voidwalker just said it. <sighs> no kidding, John, though. We are on System 4. We are the darkest of the darks. Normal people, they are able to use superpowers without having to join this group. And Sobrana says, I... I Honestly, I thought about quitting many times. I just like you, you guys. I mean, they said they said come to Chile and practice your trade. It'll help the revolution. I don't I mean, this is uh, I don't think they really want me in the farming collective punching fruits and veggies. That's the thing. Everyone finds a place to belong other than this. The work we do here, I get it, but, you know, and uh, Voidwalker just shakes her hands and drops her bat, letting it roll across the floor. And it's so branded that uh, picks it up, balancing as if it's 
nothing. Well, what we do here is important and someone has to do it. I guess it takes a special kind of personality to do here. And uh, yeah, you kind of do this because you don't have to belong, but uh, you care about uh, the people and uh, you know that the same things that maybe don't make it easy for you to fit also make you be more aware of the things that are happening outside of the communities that you are protecting. I I don't think there's anything bad with being a dork, if that is what worries you, John Doe. I mean, look, John Doe signals for Sobrano to pass him the bat. I, It's not that I'm worried about being a dork. I just, I think this is important work. It seems at least interesting in a darkly fascinating kind of way. I also meet the most interesting people. <sighs> Whatever. Uh, how interesting they can be on this. <sighs> I mean, uh, kind of gives Voidwalker this like wide-eyed, this like wide-eyed look and the like full like gesture towards. I mean, Voidwalker, you're an interesting young lady. Well, I do what I can with what I have, and uh, well, see, this world is trash. It's rubbish. It's a mess. It's vile. It's cruel. It's disgusting. But you guys know it is that. And you guys don't run away from it and you accept it and you think, hey, you're right. Maybe it can be something different. And I have not met many people like you. So I guess that makes it okay. And uh, she covers her face with her cap and Soberana shrugs at you. And uh, the expression on her face is like, I never met so many people like you. What are you, 15? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, John Doe kind of like shrugs, gives her the look of like, she's a kid. (laughs) But anyone got anything interesting on their uh, terminal? As John kind of looks at his again. Oh, I actually, I have uh, something on mind that I meant to send you. Uh, Do you know anything about this group? And uh, Subrana sends you a message and a printout to your terminal. And it talks about the Carnegie group, which... Kind of rings you a bell and the name kind of awakens anything about your idle synapses. Carnegie group. It, I'm as John starts quickly reading the product, you know, it, it feels familiar, which usually isn't too good. Carnegie group. Oh, the Carnegie group. Okay. It feels familiar. That's not usually a good thing as he tears the printout off and gives it a look. Yeah, and the printout seems to be talking about uh, how the Carnegie Group has been investing on uh, space tourism and uh, they are opening a xenobiology division and it's going to be a big exposition that is happening of, well, this is weird. Why is it happening on Brazil of all places? And you get the feeling that this is the reason why why it appeared on the feed of Superana. Because she did not talk much about it, but you know that uh, she came here escaping the, the, the dictatorship in Brazil. And uh, yeah, odd why they are doing this and why they are doing it in, in South America, of all places. 
John Doe's going to read over it twice quickly. Just a xenobiology exhibition in Brazil of nets. Uh, he's going to look, think for a minute when Highwayman gets here from his side projects. This is a curious... If you think if they're going to have a xenobiology meeting, they'd have it in one of the big space powers backyard, something to show off what they're investigating. Not here. I don't like it. Yeah, I thought that you would be interested in also keeping an eye on that. It goes without saying that uh, I'm going to be investigating. I'm thinking of taking a few days if I can get someone to go with me back home. I don't want to go alone if you get my drift. I mean, John does a quick scan to make sure there's nothing urgent on his terminals. I don't have anything pressing on mine if you want someone, if you want me to go with you. I mean, I stick out like a sore thumb everywhere I go, but... Uh, you're turning, but uh, Void Locker is already leaning over Sobrana's shoulders and they are uh, talking something. Oh, sorry, did you say something, Shondo? <sighs> I haven't. I, nothing. Talking to myself. Okay, so I guess we do have a mission now. And they both high five and then low five it. And uh, they leave the room, leaving you alone again. John yells, if you see something with my face on it, bring it back. Thanks. Looks at his terminal. I would I would have liked to go to Brazil. I've never been, but well, I've never been. Muttering to himself as he continues reading over his terminal, looking for something to get into. You're looking at your terminal as there is suddenly an update and you see a printout of a message that has been sent by a friend in another uh, war room of the cybernetic socialist movement. So who is this friend and where are they based? Run by me again real quick because I know we've established this before and I cannot remember. I know there are cybernetic socialists in South and Latin America. So basically, pretty much every third world nation has their own movement that embraces the the cybernetic international. That is very different from them actually being in power. Chile is probably the only fully cybernetic socialist country. Right. Yugoslavia is not embracing fully cybernetic socialism. Uh, it is kind of in transition. It's a bit harder to do there for multiple reasons, but they were a pillar of the of the of the movement, and they remain of high influence. So they also have a war room there, and uh, you also have a very important uh, cybernetic socialist movement in Pakistan. And they also have a recently installed war room there. Now, there are a lot of places that they might not have a fully staffed war room connected to a computer like you have here, but they might have some of the special telex machines and have a small office where they do that. Pretty much anywhere in the third world. We're actually going to say it's from the war room in Pakistan. And we're going to say it's it's Liana, who John Doe's worked with a couple of times. Actually, let's 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 really entangle this relationship. She was actually the person who recommended John Doe go to Chile. They worked together briefly in America. They ran into each other, and she recommended him come here. 
Yeah, and uh, you can see that the printout is a composite of uh, what seems to be a page in an Amer American journal, which shows a photo of you dangling with a bunch of uh, officials from uh, the Republican Party and uh, and the Soviet delegation a few weeks ago. And you can see that uh, the document is bashing you hard. John Doe kind of takes a deep breath, looks at it, reads, you know, the classic line, John Doe, a dangerous maniac who associates himself with the Cybernetic International, crush, you know, launching into an attack of innocent political people, just sighs really loud, looks to see if Liana sent him any message beyond just pointing out this journal that's mentioning him, and tears the printout out of the printer. I guess uh, he says, and even says a lot. I guess I should hand this to boss. Yeah, she did not even write any comments. She pretty much sent it without uh, any remarks. Now, that's a very curious thing to say, boss, because uh, technically you have no boss. You're the system four. Right. Technically, you answer only to system five, which is the Chilean people. So when John Doe thinks of boss, who is it thinking about? System 4's major handler. When John Doe thinks of them as boss, it's an, it's an affectation he gives them because while the handler isn't in charge of them, they, well, handle System 4 and the problems both facing and created by. So John Doe knows that they're going to want to see this before they hear it from another source. But uh, who is that? Who built uh, the system for the president, the movement of the cybernetic international uh, on a whole, who, when uh, on a Heidel thought, John Doe thinks as their boss, as the person above them, who do they think of? So he goes, John Doe, when he thinks of who's the boss who made, who made system four possible, he gets up to head to, does Beer have an office or... Beer does not have an office. John Doe thinks about where beers would be right now. He makes it his business to know. Looks at the clock. It's lunchtime. All right. And walks out to hand this to Beer. Beer, he really will hate if you will think of himself as the boss. Especially at this step of the process, he really does not consider himself the architect of this anymore. He kind of hangs around because, you know, he's living comfortable here. So most of the time he spends either working on the computer floor or meditating. And uh, you approach him and uh, he is smoking a cigar mid-eating a bar of chocolate. And uh, he seems dis halfway distracted thinking about something as he's muttering to himself on a low, calm voice. Yes, of course, uh, there's the inductor problem there and that uh, you can meet there with 
exchanging the variability nexus and and uh, he seems to be not have noticed your presence yet uh john john's going to wait until there's a pause of the thoughts and john doe almost slips up he knows beer hates being called fat he hates being called boss and in fact you know he he even starts about professor oh john it's you do you need something do you care if I do you mind if I join you? I have uh, something you might want to see. Yes, please. Have you accepted my offer to join me in a meditation offer? Not quite. I I have to interrupt your meditation as John sits next to next to Beers and hands him the uh, the printout. Liana sent me that and I thought you might want to be made aware of it. Which one is Liana again? Liana, she's in Pakistan. Uh oh yes. Bright young lady. Very. I uh, really like Tiger hair. I thought we... Were you there at the meeting in uh, Kabul last year? No. I had a uh, matter in... I believe I was in Guerrero at that time. Yeah, it says. Uh, never mind. It was very technical. I know that uh, you are not very interested on that. Those new Telex machines, they are quite impressive. And the system that they have in Pakistan, well, their office will not exist without those. So I think they are making good progress with those. Anyway, I don't know what you want me to say to this. It seems that you found yourself again on the spot. It does feel like it happens a touch too often professor but i just wanted you to be made aware of it so it wouldn't be an uncomfortable surprise i don't know what to expect if you're expecting a lecture or something but i can tell that you are not satisfied with how you went that's why you are seeking my approval and nourishment again there's clearly something that is in turmoil within you and uh, i don't think you should expect me to address that you should listen to yourself more john uh, John, John Doe kind of awkwardly like that painful kind of smile just oh, of course professor I just wanted to let you know the incident in the Alps it brought memories back and I just wanted you to see this so it wouldn't be a surprise if someone else brought it up to you let's get into that office and uh, he points the closest thing to his office which is uh, it's basically a glorified storage room for uh, old printouts and uh, all the different maintenance checkups of the equipment there and uh, there is a single single metal chair which he offers to you as he sits on a corner smoking so, you think it might compromise your ability to be part of the system for? I don't think it does. It's, I, Professor, it was very comprehensive flash. I've, I mean, I know you're well informed about my condition. It never has happened quite like that. I mean, it's one thing if, you know, when you hand me, a, when you hand me a pistol and I can field strip and put it back together just by talking while I'm doing it because my hands remember that's one thing but this I could see things I, I don't know it it worries me professor so the way that we operate is kind of how the, how the way of everything operates it's all about answering to vulnerability and storage now it seems it might seem that you don't have many recourses because you are working on the system for of a worldwide movement. So what would be regulating that? Well, the crux of that is that the system is supposed to be self-regulating. 
And if it seems it's not, you have to ask if the system itself is breaking down in its own smaller viable system models. If it has its own system one, system two, system three, system four, system five. So if you look at your life, not as a member of system four, if your life is the system one, if you're knowing what is going wrong in your life, namely these memories, would be your system two. What would be the system three that says this management? Well, it seems like it's going to be this meeting. You are seeking me to help you manage that. You're processing yourself to manage this. Well, the question that I have to you is, maybe it's time that you have to step it up. So what would be your system four and what will be your system five of your life? If you need to check your capacity of yourself to deal with variability, who will you turn to? John kind of, he kind of welts under that particular question, looking around. Well, uh, I mean, I suppose I could turn to close personal friends and have them regulate, help me understand how to regulate my life. Yes, that's a good answer. As or as your colleagues will say, and uh, there's a long drag and a ring of smoke. You're being a dork. And what you need is to share these worries with your friends instead of uh, for someone that, uh, and he narrows his eyes, your boss, your shift manager. He almost slips up again. And I'm sure that at this close distance with him staring, Beer sees him start to say, Professor, I'll, I'll go speak with my colleagues and close personal friends. Uh, that might be good. But uh, always remember one thing, and this applies to every viable system model. You have to ask yourself what purpose that system serves and the things that it requires to enact its purpose and what are the things that exist only to propagate itself, to calcify. What I mean is, why, John Doe? Why are you? And uh, how much of these things are actually helping you be a better version of yourself or are just keeping you surviving every day. Again, the purpose of any system is not its own survival. When it becomes that, you know that you have a broken system. And that's, that's well, why my friend Salvador started this whole thing. John kind of stands off. He gives that little like, Professor, thank you. I'm going to go grab some lunch. Yeah, and uh, Beers, he watches you say that and leave as if the concept of lunch is foreign to him and he starts tinkering again with the, the equipment. In another corner of the city, we see Johnny Jennings. Now, Johnny, where do you live? You live among the other expats that live in Chile. Do you find any nice place outside of the capital proper or any other unusual arrangement? 
Yeah, I think it's outside of the capital, probably in a moderately remote area in like a small, like, I don't want to call it a hut, like sort of like a cabin kind of thing, but it's very small. It's very functional. He has a small garage for his really amazing motorcycle and, you know, just a little patch of land right about there. So you are free today. So you have prepared the perfect day out for yourself. So what is Johnny Jennings idealize it free day? Now, are we talking like genuine recreation here? Or are we just talking like heroing? Like you have one day in which you don't have to show up on the war room. You don't have to do any heroing. You are free. You have a day in which you have free control of your schedule. You have no appointment spending with anyone else. You have no prior arrangements. You are not conditioned in any way. You have a day under your control. What is the ideal in your case then? I mean, if I'm if I'm being perfectly honest, I feel like it's probably like fishing. <laughs> yeah, Johnny is definitely he's from the the east side of, of Tennessee. So he does. I mean, like he got used to doing a lot of sort of outdoor activities and stuff like that as like a kid growing up. So he his spare time, he like hunts and fishes and he really likes to just like go hiking. He does a lot of sort of outdoorsy stuff, rock climbing. He's very into that. You know, if he can find a, a nice like cliff diving spot, he's super into doing stuff like that, too. So who is he doing it with? Who is their companion now on this day fishing? Mm. I imagine that he's probably very low key about sort of his like reasons for being in Chile. I don't think he like I think he kind of tries to keep a pretty tight lid on that sort of part of his life. So what I'm guessing is like he has probably just made friends with some locals. And, you know, sometimes they just go out and just get out on a river and fish together. So I'm trying to conceptualize this person. I think it's probably like an older guy, but I'm bad at coming up with names. Everyone knows this about me. Ludo, you can name him if you want, because it'll be faster. <laughs> you went fishing with Enrique and uh, he's an old guy. He's really, you know, he's that uh, hat that... Uh, <laughs> about women and fishing basically the chilean version in man form i i love him already enrique is my favorite and uh, he's very skeptical about the whole uh, socialistic endeavor but you know he was able to retire before all this mess hit the fan and he avoided that and uh all he does is complain, but, uh, you know, he loves to fish and uh, he's kind of has this begrudging respect uh, for you and, uh, you know, considers you a real man, like they don't make it anymore. And he kind of knows that you work for the government somehow, but does not quite get it. But uh, that only solidifies more his respect. I also think as uh, what pleases Johnny so much about this guy in general is that he has a lot of that like old man, like fishing know-how kind of stuff. Just like that, that really awesome, like folksy stuff that really old people just know a lot. And that, like, you know, just these little tricks about like, you know, just like you can bait your hook this way. If you like look for this little type of like this current variation in the water, that means there's like a little patch of fish right there. Johnny loves that kind of stuff. He also likes hearing Enrique complain about the government. 
I don't think he ever like I don't think he ever argues against him. I think he's just kind of just like, yeah, yeah, no, it's a great point. Yeah, it's me and Enrique hanging out on a boat. Yeah. And uh, the hours go by and uh, as you go back to shore, you notice an uh, an emergency contact to your home telex and you recognize the number. It was another moon veteran that uh, defected to Chile and uh, he's currently working out on uh, basically spionage. Who are they and why will they be contacting you? Uh, Sorry, uh, you said uh, they are working. uh, What was that last part? Uh, Basically, they are doing spy work, kind of saying if, uh, you know, if the Americans are going to be doing something or whatnot. Gotcha. Who is this person? I imagine as far as power set goes, I think that their powers, I I think are pretty standard, like super soldier stuff. Like it's, you know, they are strong, they are fast, but I think that they are also naturally pretty talented at just regular old stealth. Just have always had like a natural gift for that, even before the super soldier stuff, which makes them a pretty ideal spy. This person, I'm trying really hard not to come up with a really cliche stealth name, stealth superhero name. I think they just call them Breeze. I think this person uses they, them pronouns. Yeah. And why will they be contacting you? You know that, uh, you know, spy work, it's always dangerous. So they'd probably be uh, contacting Johnny because, I mean, it's. I think it's what you said. Like, it is always dangerous. They have gotten themselves into trouble somehow. I think this person, they weren't like friends or like super close during the moon wars, but I do think that they got along at least in sort of a a passing way. The main thing about them is just that sometimes they let themselves get a little too far into trouble before they will ask someone to help them out of it, which very mildly annoys Johnny, but they're also a little younger than him. So he, it's kind of, he has a little bit of like an older brother complex about that. So he's just like, all right, idiot, come on, let's, you know, let's get this fixed for you. Yeah, and uh, you fear that might be the case, that uh, this is more of a, a Hail Mary attempt, desperate sending this for someone that uh, they know by might be safe. It's basically a warning. Uh, uh, it's a pretty common cipher that... Uh, you knew from your days on the moon war. So it's not even that safe. The Americans probably know it. It's really just a question of uh, giving just a speed bump rather than uh, keeping it secret. And uh, the message from Riz reads that uh, the Americans are planning a big operation. It involves the Oliku company somehow. It's going to be on a scale of uh, previous unseen dimensions. Might involve and then it cut off. I think under his breath in English, he says, ah, hell. And then he turns around and in Spanish, he says to him, and I am going to continue doing the accent when I say that Johnny is speaking in Spanish. So I don't know how that sounds in Spanish, but probably pretty funny. So he says, hey, uh, Enrique, can you go ahead and I guess, uh, do you mind tying the boat up for a minute? I got to I got to take a call. And I think it would be his responsibility to report this to the, the socialists, right? Or would he just act on it? Well, that's the thing. Do you send a message to System 4 or do you 
do you do it yourself? Because you know, by the way, that it's organized, that basically everyone has the few topics which they cover and they monitor. Who besides yourself do you think would be aware of these topics and be looking for this? Because if you don't think of anyone else, you will probably be sending a message that the person that would be reading it would be you. Yeah, that's a great, that is a great point. I don't know if there, I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head, honestly. I mean, maybe John Doe, I've worked with him on stuff like that before, but. Yeah, so the thing that might happen is maybe John Doe will read it, or maybe you are the one responsible and you will be the one that needs to, to tell to the other members of the movement exactly what is going on and figure it out. And if there is a response to prepare it. So more likely than not, this is your, this is your game now. This is your play. You're the director. Okay. Well, then, uh, yeah, I think he, Makes a very polite excuse to Enrique about having to leave to get out an assignment for for work um, and make sure that he at least make sure that, you know, like the boat is secured and everything and that Enrique is like good as much as quickly as he can. Ah, that bastard poet making you go on your free day. Ah, I tell you, those communists had no respect for anyone. I tell you what, man, it's like you never you never clock out. It's I te- it's just it's it never stops. But, you know, it's it's good work. I'm grateful for it. Uh, pendejo. Well, there will be another day. More fishing. I, 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 listen, that's always what I hope. Is uh, well, better go see the wife. Uh, <laughs> he says, "All right, brother. Just, well, you uh, you be good now. Stay safe out there." And he gets on his cool motorcycle and zooms away. I'm assuming there's a road somewhere nearby. If not, well, I don't think considering your predilections of uh, vehicle. <laughs> That you will pick a home that has a garage with no road. That's a great point. Definitely that. I also thought for a second you were going to say, considering my predilection for making the motorcycle drive in really stupid places, that, it, that not having a road there would not stop me. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Well, at least you're not driving it through the Alps, uh, naval style. So Driving it up the side of a mountain. Yeah. So are you going to drive your motorcycle all the way back to Santiago or at some point you take transportation? Would it be conceivable that I might have like a couple places where I can like, like, uh, like almost like storage units, a couple like places I can stash the bike in Santiago? Yeah. I mean, uh, I feel like we have decent resources. Yeah. You know, anywhere, anywhere, you know, ma- uh, the major interways into the city and uh, the major train stations, you're going to have public garages uh, exactly for this kind of stuff. And uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I think what he would, that's what he would use. So yeah, he'll take the bike all the way back into Santiago. Is there, this is another sort of, is, is this likely question? Is there some way that I could have done something to like cloak the bike, make it a little less ostentatious? If like, you know, just when I leave it in there, no one looks at it and thinks that's the highwayman's motorcycle. They're just like, that's a bike. Yeah, sure. What do you do? How do you do this crime? I think it is both it is both cool science and also just regular practicality. He he has devised some sort of device that I think can it basically projects like a a a shell, like a a, a holographic shell over the bike itself. 
it's not, I, I don't know if it's literally holographic. I just don't know enough about science to, to properly uh, qualify what that would be, but it basically just makes it look like a plain, a plain black bike. And then the other part is he literally just puts a tarp over it so that even if somebody looks at it, they're just like, ah, oh, it's a boring bike. And uh, as you drive uh, there, you see the tapestry of uh, the neighborhoods across Santiago as the vast array of roads and train track connect the city to its surroundings. And what do you see across the road that reminds you that uh, this place has changed pretty fast in the last five years and uh, not everything has accompanied the development? I think it's as he's passing through these neighborhoods, there are like some areas of housing that have been pretty much like entirely replaced and they are visibly nicer, but he knows, I think just a little about construction and recognizes that these were thrown together in a hurry and they probably won't be that nice in not very many years versus other, like there are some older neighborhoods that like just haven't really been like changed at all. And they are still made more stir. Like they are still more sturdy construction than this new stuff, but they are also clearly pretty run down. And then there are parts that he drives through that are just like very genuinely like well-constructed, extremely nice buildings but I think he sees the most people out on the streets in the, in the other two neighborhoods. There are more people just kind of out and around than in, than in that last, that last category. As you enter Santiago proper, you have to go to a troll where your papers are inspected. And what besides that is different that uh, you notice changed about the Chilean project after the communists elected the president to succeed the previous socialist leader that initiated the cybernetic movement. Well, we know that they are more worried about tracking their foreign-born citizens. Right. I think, I mean, there would just be, I think, more bureaucracy in general, right? Like, there would be a lot more kind of red, like, they would just have to do a lot more. They don't just check the papers. Now they have to log things, and they have to, like, you know, this is who came and goes. Like, so it's a it's a little bit more, I don't want to say, like, it's it's a little bit more surveillance-y, because that doesn't feel quite right, but it's like, as a foreign-born citizen, you are pretty well accounted for anytime you have to interact with anything, I guess, related to the government now, whereas before you could at least just kind of, like, uh, pardon my choice of words, but piss off and mind your business. Yeah, so it's more the previous president. I will issue the cops. The current one has put people in suits acting as the cop. And we know how Johnny Jennings feels about cops. It's bad. Yeah, and uh, as they flip through your uh, documents, uh, again, you are, unlike most of the superheroes in the country that are well-known people and uh, inserted well into the tapestry of society, instead of being their own class as they are in the two empires, uh, you are maybe old habits, maybe not. You live under a cover identity. So for the all intents and purposes... Who officially Johnny Jennings is? Officially, uh, Johnny Jennings is, um, I'm trying to come up with a hilarious name because I think it's got to be something really ridiculous, just kind of knowing him. It's Willard. Willard Willard Cash. 
That's his, that's his cover name. And, uh, if you ask, uh, anyone, he is from, he's from Kansas and he's real big on corn. And, uh, what is his occupation? Because he's supposed to be at the factor that, uh, is providing some kind of service to the government. I mean, that's how you have uh, credentials to go into governmental buildings and not. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a liaison for the American offices of some I think just reasonably large scale obscure industrial farming company. Yeah, I think that's what he does. He like like that's what this this fictional person does. He just represents those that that company and and all of their great farming they do there and and manages their contracts with the government. So I'm saying that your cover identity is a lobbyist. Yeah. Oh, that's gross. I don't. Mm, I know. I don't think he would actually. Hmm, that's actually a great point. I don't think that would go well. That would. That would do right by him. Um, no. I mean, especially as an academic, I. I would think that it will be something related to your speciality. Oh yeah, that's probably. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, he is a fake professor at the. At what is the? There's a college in Santiago, is there not? <laughs> There's definitely more than one. Okay, but you know that are they probably changed the name or made new ones after you know the cybernetic socialists being in power? Yeah, he has just chosen one of them arbitrarily and and says that he is a professor there who also does some consulting work as far as the scientific divisions of the of the government. Uh, in what field is he a professor? Uh, physics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. <laughs> that was true. That was true before. That was true before the Moon War. That was actually just the truth. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, you are let and uh, yeah, you you are in Santiago. Do you go straight up to the to the offices of the war room, or do you go somewhere to prepare for the worst? Do you start some investigating on your own? What do you do? I feel like most likely he would start investigating on his own. The, the sort of urgency of, of that message from Breeze is a little concerning because, again, Breeze's main habit is just to get themselves just way too deep into trouble before they actually contact anyone. So there is a reasonable chance that this is a relatively urgent situation. So, um, yeah, I think, is there any way that he could try to track that signal back from where it was sent? Well, you you go to you go to the the Metropolitan College where you are where you are a professor and it is a university that was part of the part of the part of the entire new endeavor of renewal and uh, most of its focus is on telecommunications where you know that there are many superpowered individuals that work there. And uh, it has been basically the entryway for uh, all the other third world powers uh, that uh, start to lean towards the ideals of the cybernetic socialists. And they spend time on Chile. This is usually their entryway. Either professors or students here where they familiarize themselves to the challenge of that. And 
uh, again, the main uh, the main department is technology. The second greatest is economy, and the third uh, the third greatest is uh, the the computer science department. And uh, already there is pretty rigid competition between the team, but you have within the university you have ma- multiple labs which you can use exactly for this purpose. Yeah, I would almost certainly, I think, just focus on on doing that first, just like trying to figure out exactly where the signal came from, at least as close as I can get it so that I can get an idea of, of where they are, if they need to be, if they need to be extracted. And if, you know, there's going to be immediate follow up work that me and Breeze probably will have to do together because I will make because they are there. So, yeah. And uh, I suppose that uh you try to act the normal professor, right? You don't uh, don't want to draw attention to your activities. So, like any proper professor, you are not going to be caught doing something that uh, you can up on your assistant professor. So, tell us who is the poor assistant professor that ends up most of the time covering up for your double life. Oh man, this poor person. Um, I think it's another American expat, Roscoe Jenkins. <laughs> yeah, his name is Roscoe Jenkins, and he is, you know, he's a he's a very nice guy. He's he's an extremely nice person. He always seems a little bit, just a little, a little, just sort of like very. He always seems a little stressed, not in a not in an annoyed way, just like a slightly nervous way. And he, yeah, usually ends up like Johnny will just be like, hey, Roscoe, sorry, bud, you know, really got to take care of blah, blah, blah. Can you help me with this? And he almost always can, which is great. And Johnny, I think, very genuinely appreciates him. Or I, I, I should say Dr. Dr. Willard Cash appreciates him very much. I think he tries to do as many like nice things for him around work as possible, just so that that Roscoe will be amiable to doing to doing all of this stuff yeah and you see roscoe pretty eager and cheerful and surprised oh professor wheeler cash i was not aware that you were gonna be here today i've been telling everyone that it's your day off you know yeah it, uh, it is but i was i was sitting at home actually i was i was out fishing enrique, enrique says hello but yeah i was out fishing and you know i i'd had something occur to me as far as some of my research is concerned. I thought I was going to kind of just, you know, sneak in and just sort of sneak in and, and maybe uh, just sort of run a couple of quick tests. Nothing you need to be concerned about there, Roscoe. It's, it's, it's I promise it's going to be, you know, just sort of quick and easy. Don't tell anybody I'm here. If you don't mind, I would really appreciate, I don't want, you know, no questions or any, I don't want to deal with any live assistance or anything today. Yeah. And, uh, you dump on him to go through the tech labs and run to this. And, uh, you you have some time as he does that. So, uh, I guess you go investigating this Oligo thing. Yes. That would be. You go to the nearest library when you consult their records. And, uh, Oligo is a Dutch American company that, uh, they are a specialist in vegetable oils and uh, they owned a fuckload of land in the north of the country which you don't know much about agriculture but you know that that is actually pretty that's pretty arid region i mean there's a whole desert up there right 
So it seems like they corner basically whatever little water it is, and uh, they had control of that. And uh, and yeah, and uh, they use it to have a lot of uh, olive trees and uh, and palm trees on the region. And uh, that's it. And you're pretty confident that uh, that is not good for the local populations. And in fact, you find a lot of microfilms of journals about uh, quarrels between the company and their people and the local local folks. And uh, of course, they, they are, unfortunately, they are indigenous minority. So they kind of went under the radar for a long time. And uh, unfortunately, the the system of land reform that uh, that was happening during the previous regime, in which basically it supported the peasants seizing up the lands in which they, they worked on and forming cooperatives and going against the law. So the government was not only not enforcing the law, but also helping them do these efforts and organize themselves in militias later when the revolution turned to counter-revolution. That was a region that, uh, because most of it was owned exactly by these uh, foreign companies, those efforts were much more diminished than they were in the center and south of the country. And uh, that fight kind of dragged during the second term of the previous president. And uh, recently, when uh, El Poeta took power and the communists dictate the terms, land reform started being pushed quite aggressively. So there has been a lot of pressure from those companies to basically either sell the land to the government or lose it to organized occupation cooperatives. But uh, you can see that uh, there are still problems because a lot of those local indigenous peoples, they are not being involved by into the process, not by the government, nor by any company in the sector, obviously. So it seems that uh, these, basically these company towns up north, they are dying and uh, they the the response of the government killing them might be giving an excuse for the American Empire to do operations in the region. And the mention of Oliku means that whatever is happening with Oliku might be exactly this excuse. That's at least the lead that you have so far. Well, that's pretty troubling. Yeah, and uh, Roku returns and uh, he seems pretty nervous. Uh, Professor Wilkin Cash, I ran the numbers three times already. I'm sure I did not make any mistake, but uh, it makes no sense. Can you double check it? Sure. Uh, what's uh, what's what's wrong? What's going on? He says nothing, but starts fidgeting with his fingers. And as you look down, you immediately understand why why he's nervous because that does not make much sense that triangulation because it's not coming from anywhere on earth it's not coming from anywhere even on the solar system well now ain't that something you said three times already yeah i checked it uh, it has to be a mistake 
Thank you very much, Roscoe. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm quite sure you didn't uh, you didn't make any mistakes here. That's very interesting. Uh, yes, thank you so much for your help. Would it be under my purview to like tell him to take days off? Well, yeah, but uh, don't you just have to leave now? Oh no, no. I was just gonna tell him that uh, he can take just like that. I'll be giving him a couple extra vacation days uh, when I get back from the trip that I have to that I have to go on. Yeah, no, I leave immediately. Do I? Would I be able to figure out why this signal is coming? For, or like, would I have any inkling as to why this signal is coming from somewhere outside of our solar system? It will mean that uh, when Breeze was caught, she was outside of the solar system. So she was outside of the solar system when she figured out this plot of the Americans involving Olico. I appreciate their their they're dedicating their their time and energy to thinking about things on Earth while outside of the solar system. That's very that's very nice of them. Um, <laughs> well, apparently the Americans were there. Yeah, that's true. Hey, how would I even? <laughs> I guess that's I you know you know pearls before swine and all that yeah I I would start heading towards the the Olico stuff here and I guess I'll ah man but is there even any way I could get to them I I kind of set up this thing where uh, Johnny's like whole like sort of motivation typically is saving their ass and now I don't know if I can get there because it's outside of the solar system unless there's some way to get there. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe they were captured by the Americans. They are bringing them back. Well, let's see. But it's yeah, it's definitely something that uh, cannot do immediately. Yeah, no, it's it's I, I hear it takes some time to get outside of the solar system. <laughs> yeah, I heard that, too. Um, yeah, he would, I think, start thinking about how he's going to how he's going to get tab somewhere breezes at some point soon. But they were trying to send this specific thing. So he's going to focus on the, the task they have put in front of him. So what you're going to do, you have all this information. You're kind of expected to tell System 4 about it and prepare prepare a response, which it's going to be. Yeah. So um, I think he would make at least like an organized set of kind of quick notes and then head to System 4 and just like report in basically just to be like, hey, this is what's happening. This is like we need to figure out a response to this. And if I think he would probably be the one at least like to like, I I think he would expect that the main response is he's going to go do something. So he would just kind of that would be the only plan that he has at the moment. But I mean, no, I'm sure he has lots of plans. He's a tactic. I'm not sure that I know what to do. I mean, but like at the very least, he would start by going to System 4. And uh, as soon as you get to the system for building, it's this repurposed police station. As soon as you are entering, you you are intercepted by this tiny woman, and uh, you recognize her. It's Marisa Canyone. It's one of the other superheroes of System Four, and uh, she is wearing very masculine clothing of her culture, which means, on that case, a lot of frills and lace and skirts, and uh, she is wearing her martial arts equipment too, and uh, as she drops the the sticks between hands she she's again locked out on you as I she smelled something oi you are not supposed to be here what do you have there would this be a person that I should that I would not want to tell about this well that's the thing what do you think about Kenyonia um, I mean I'm assuming that she is fairly like competent would that be an accurate assumption 
you know that she was a freedom fighter, that uh, she came to Chile during the American invasion of 74 and because she was a volunteer there. But uh, she's a bit like uh, John Doe, one of those uh, martial arts freaks, you know, and, uh, and I'm not sure how much you feel about uh, how strongly and proudly she wears her culture. And not that you might have much stones to throw there, outlaw country bandits and all. Yeah, I don't think that part bothers. Uh, I don't think that part bothers him. Yeah, but uh, she is, again, a pretty reckless type. I was looking for the challenger in the fight. So she might not be the most, you know, discreet person to bring up with you. So you might not necessarily involve her on this operation. Yeah, it's the it's the reckless part that I think he finds a little frustrating. Uh, Like Johnny kind of strikes me as a very like a very even tempered person in general. I think, you know, I wouldn't call him especially cheery. He's kind of a stoic dude, but he I still think is, is it takes a pretty good bit for him to actually like find someone unlikable. So I think he's just like, oh, uh, just uh, hey, hey, Marissa, um, house, house, uh, house things. No, yeah, I'm not a I'm not actually supposed to be here today. You're right. But, uh, you know, I just uh, I just uh, came to check in on something. Do I have an office Do I or something here? Well, you have better than the office. You have it. A terminal station on the war room. Yes, I think I just say, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I just needed to just plug some information in my uh, at my terminal just before I forgot. You know, it's a, you know, it's a, I've been having a lot of fun today, and you know, maybe maybe a little too much fun. You know, um, and I uh, just need to make sure that I uh, when I when I come back from a day off that I'm I'm still ready to get back to back to business. You know, so uh, just you know, don't worry about it. Just carry on. Do uh, you know have a have a great rest of your day? And I think he tries to slip away as quick as possible. <laughs> So she narrows her eyes and points one of the fencing sticks at you. Wait, you came here today when you're free, and you're not asking me to come with us to the Glasgow operation. Why are you here? And what can be more exciting than escorting a war criminal to the Hajj? Oh yeah, it's glass. Um, I you know I forgot that Glasgow was happening. This you know honestly, it, I I gotta tell you, it's actually it's sort of the opposite. I'm not actually looking for a whole lot of excitement today. It's like you said, you know, it's a day off, so mostly been trying to keep things pretty tame. Went fishing. You ever been fishing? It's nice. But yeah, you know, I just a couple of beers and just wanted to make sure that I didn't forget to get this stuff plugged in. It's just a spreadsheet. They just need to make sure that I've got the data on the spreadsheet. So that when I come in next, it's it's already there. A lot of a lot of math. Yeah. So you're talking this as you know, as you're waiting for the elevator to come down, still talking as you enter inside the elevator and wait for it to close. And this canyoning is wondering what a spreadsheet is. Now I need to ask an important question. Do spreadsheets not exist or is it just that she is not familiar with them? Of course not. You was telex. <laughs> Where are you inputting spreadsheets? In this case, the spreadsheets will be literally spreadsheets on paper. Okay, good. Good, good, good. <laughs> it's, it's a big... Yes, yes. It's... Oh, God. Yeah, and of course, she's confusing because if there is a thing that Professor Beering insists is that there is not a single sheet of paper in the war room. 
So it's like, is this nerd bringing paper in the, into the war room? Yeah, can I distract her by just, like, talking a lot about math and just, like, talking a lot about, like, how, like, certain things in physics affect other things and I was just, like, all, just, like, just rambling about, like, I have, like, basically, I just want to deter her with math. Is that a thing that I can do? As the elevator mercifully closes and you start going up towards the war room, uh, I guess you can see in the corner of the screen, Kenyonya uh, will remember this. You know, that's um, that's fair. <laughs> I I think this is this is just how I start off every season of this show, I think, at this point, with at least one NPC who will remember the bad excuses that I made. <laughs> We move away from Chile. We move away from the land entirely. And uh, we move to two-page spread showing a distant land. What do you see drawn on the page to immediately enrapture the reader? Probably, uh, so old houses built into the earth. I mean, literally built into the earth because it's very cold up here. And that's like a great way to just cheap insulation, dirt, an old long house. And probably in the far background, mammoths and like a saber tooth tiger. Of course, we need that. And in that you see a very tall individual sibling-esque hug with very old person seems to be the religious leader of the people and uh, as one flips the page we see an ominous panel as a fleet of battleships and uh, a carrier filled with small strange ships and uh, various mechanized units including one uh, massive giant sized mecha is approaching the coastline who are they and how it is your mission to stop them today uh we established it was like pro- it's probably the is the european union a thing yet i can't remember yes and no, it is still the, the European economic uh, zone. So it is still, you know, it lacks a lot of the structures that it has. Also, the leadership is on the Benelux and Poland instead of the Benelux, England and uh, Germany. So I'm going to establish that this is the American Empire or whatever we call it now. What is it, what's it called again? United States of America, last I heard. So the American Empire. Yeah, so the American Empire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it, it's one of the like USS whatever. And uh, I'm supposed to be part of the vanguard of the people who basically are the, you know, they've lived on the land. This is their home. Uh, I'm I may be just a new addition, a, a person who washed up on the beach, but I feel like this is where I belong and I, I have to defend it. So, yeah. Okay. So you have the rest of the next two pages. You have six panels to show you absolutely wrecking their shit and giving us a show of what Berserkir powers are. I'm going to say the first thing that lands is some of the smaller mecha. My character is six, seven, five. They still cower over me. They give their little spiel about a new way, blah, blah, blah. 
we come in peace, blah, 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 kind of BS. And then I shout, well, if you came in peace, then why do you come with weapons? And see this transformation. So basically, I'm going to describe it like it's kind of brutal and almost bloody as it seems like animals are just the animal hides that form around me just seem to like bite into my skin and where the the scars form war war paint is formed and you know the whole spin around oh wait we're in comic book form we don't do the spin around yet i'm thinking magical girl but then suddenly stands before them berserk gear and several others do follow suit and i just slam my axe into the first mecha cutting it like straight down the middle and then like you see the pilot is now missing an arm as half of the mech just falls to the side. So you actually managed to fend off them quite easily, even if you were prepared to a prolonged battle. And uh, the fleet turns around and is moving on the other direction. And uh, you, your squadron, you return home and you're met by the person that taught you tactics on how to fight. Who are they? Thora Grumdatir. So, Thora... She, her, by the way, so... Okay, so Thora, she she meets you by the wayside, frowning, crosses her arms, already done with it. Report. Uh, Those machines, i never seen them before. Or would I have seen them? Probably not. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I... You probably saw photos or paintings of them. Mm-hmm. I've only seen them in paintings and photos, but they are no match for us and the cowards fled. I don't like it. They did a big maneuver. They came here spewing oil and poisoning the land with their fumes and uh, making a big show and blasting propaganda for hours before actually showing up. I know when someone wants to be seen and yet they really did not put up a fight. The moment they started taking actual losses, they pulled a retreat. You will not come out this way just to make a show if that was your goal. And we'll beat them back again and again and as many times as it takes. You don't get it. You did not beat them. This was nothing. Okay, what did I told you? You need to see beyond the battle. You need to see the pieces move. They were not beaten. They did not come here to fight, or at least not the way that we fight. Their mission was something else, and if we don't know what their objective is, they're going to succeed. You know better than most of us how vile the world outside can be. I was expecting that you would have some clue to what drove these men of the bald eagle up north just to retreat so quietly. Thinking about it, it was an excuse. As this realization, like, they want an excuse to fight. That is a good idea. We have heard the tales that uh, our friends of the Third World Movement tell us. Their diplomats shared stories of others of how the men of the Bald Eagle show up. And they always want to make sure that their wars were for peace, that somehow there is honor in deception and in false proposals when they actually they seek only to profit. This would befit that. What could they want here? I mean, there's plenty of other re- places with easier access to resources. I mean, I don't 
I think this is like a kind of a volcanic island and there's probably oil deposits here because there's always oil deposits in the Arctic Ocean. They probably just want more. They always want more. Every empire wants more. It is true, but even the people of the other empire, I've heard that they have a saying that is not enough that the eagle gets the profits and spoils of empire. They want all the profits and exploits of empire. And if there is no more to be gotten, they will invent a way to get more. I dismissed that as typical imperial noise about the other imperial opposition. But uh, the more I see the way that they act, I fear that there might be some truth to that behavior. We've been given proposals by the Third World Coalition. Should we send an envoy to them? And maybe they can help us protect our land. We should, but before that, I want a scouting party to be sent and see if there are more troops in waiting. Because if they are hoping for an excuse, they're going to have their actual main force somewhere. Can you do that? Uh, Yes, I can do that. I, I will ma- I will get the crew for a long ship immediately. And uh, the community, they arm you with magical artifacts. And uh, they also give you something that you don't recognize. Some kind of machine. One of the other explains, this was sent by the people of Cyber, the boat steerers. They tell me that it allows communication across range. They call it the quantum entanglement telex. If you find anything, you use it to tell us. All right. And uh, we clasp arms and I take the item into the kind of hold of the boat and we shove off. So as you sail around, why is the sea so inaccessible, so dangerous? And uh, what are the many tricks and skills that uh, your people have developed developed to navigate its waters? Well, I think why why we believe it is like it's the gods protecting us. I mean, for so long, it's been so inaccessible, except for maybe the occasional shipwreck and stuff with the larger ships and the big metal boats. It's become easier. But I think it's just this kind of a standard Arctic Ocean currents and storms usually happen. And we, we've just adapted. I mean, we, we have a deeper keel in our boats than most Vikings would keep it afloat. Some magical runes on the side to keep it from capsizing. And Joachim is manning one of the oars as we just start not using a sail because I think a storm has brewed at this point. So... We're rowing and rowing as as a drum beater just beats their drum to keep us in rhythm. So what has changed drastically about the environment that made possible for the massive merchant fleets to navigate through these seas where before it was impossible? And uh, it's not only led to that, it also caused, again, some major change to the environment, which probably have other repercussions for your way of life. I I think it's the start of climate change. You know, it's the 70s. It's just starting as the water area starts to calm down. And uh, what other impacts of climate change have forced life to change 
we're mostly agrarian, but we do, you know, hunt and keep animals, but the animals are starting to not breed as fast and start dying off more. And it's slowly happening now, but it's starting to become noticeable and a bit concerning for the people as, you know, there's the mammoth herd, like, which we kind of, we knew to maintain it. We can't just keep killing off the mammoths and all the other large game or else they won't come back. But the mammoth herd is, despite those efforts, is getting smaller and smaller every year. Yeah, and uh, you meet with the American fleet and uh, you see some of their ships wrecked as they have fallen prey to, to the protection of the sea gods. And you follow the survivors and you see that uh, they are not even stopping to rescue. So they must be really be in a rush to leaving. And uh, huh, if their point was to goad you into attacking so that they could justify the aggression and deploy an actual invasion force, where is the invasion force? Well, they don't even seem pretty prepared to handle the sea. What is their real plan here? I use the the thingamabob <laughs> to communicate, try to like push buttons until I can hear something. And uh, I try and peer into the, the storm to see if there's any other ships in the area coming towards us. Yeah, and uh, you type that and uh, the machines just keep churning around and eventually you see a printout, our friends in the third world. And uh, it reads, we are not the target. We are the lure for the real prey. You must warn our friends in the third world. I will try and send a response, however that works, as I try to figure this machine out. I haven't used a machine in a decade, decades probably at this point. And I will state to the boatman, well, they say we made it to the new world once. Let's see if we can make it again. We can resupply on some of the islands on the way, but we make it for the third world coalition. page of the current issue has been given by Professor Stafford Beer, a selection from his lecture series on designing freedom on the future can be demanded now. Crimson Gold Agonies is an associate of Court Games and D20 Radio. Joaquin Jarve, aka Berserkir, is played by Brent Torreson. They can be found at Copper Credit almost everywhere. Check out their other podcasts, Splinters of Jade and L5R Thriller Actual Play. They are available for editing work. Message them for rates. 
Johnny Jennings, aka The Highwayman, is played by Sam Sedlak. They can be found at SGCADelaysec on Instagram and Young Space Dead on Twitter. They are largely impressive. John Doe is played by Bradley Handler. You can follow him at Judge the Barbarian on Twitter or as co-writer on Split Roll, where he screams his opinions at you. Ludo handles the rest. You can find them at The Lettel and more of her stuff as Agonizing Crimson at Itchio or co-writing Split Roll. Citadel Comics RPG is the property of Greater Than Games and designed in collaboration with Critical Hits. Crimson Gold Agonies is possible through the support of listeners like you. You can support us on Patreon or even better, you can review us on iTunes and you can spread the word because there is no better way to get into a podcast just because a friend told us about it.